you know, there are people who write books and stories like this and they can, you know, easily read them without any emotional response. But clearly I have not mastered that ability. <laughs> this is Daring to Tell, the podcast where we hear true stories of personal daring read by the writers who have lived them. I'm your host, Michelle Rado. I never did see Nothing like that I never did dream Nothing like that What must it be like to see and manipulate places where very few of us mortals have ever had the chance or occasion, hopefully, to see? Not only to see, but to comprehend to cut and sew the insides of a gut or a heart, or in the case of today's guest, a brain. I'm someone who has always loved stories or reporting about the human brain. I don't really seek out watching those kind of surgeries or anything like that, but I am usually curious to know more about our bodies and how they work. This changed just a little bit when I myself had gut surgery. I decided to stay somewhat ignorant of all the details of the procedure. My surgeon explained in general terms what was going to happen to me for what was called anterior rectal resection. The only word in that title that I even comprehended was rectal, and that was a word I had great aversion to saying for years after the operation. What I knew was that I had a large precancerous polyp that had to come out. I imagined a sort of ghost-shaped monster clinging to the side of my intestine, and I imagined my surgeon just clipping it off, like how a dermatologist might snip off a skin tab. Much later, I asked him about exactly how he took out the monster, as I called it, and I still can't really recall his description because it was pretty grisly even afterwards. I only remember it somehow involved a big spike, and that's where I tuned out. Eventually, I realized it was probably closer to taking an empty paper towel tube, snipping out the middle section, and then gluing the two ends back together. And Dr. G, if you are listening, I am sure I have gotten even that part wrong too, but that's okay. You are the only one, well, along with whoever else was with you in the OR that day, who has ever seen such insides of me, my gut, and for that, I truly thank you. Today, I was fortunate to snag some time from a brain surgeon. That's right, a man who has opened up people's skulls and manipulated their gray matter. 
His name is Dr. James Doty, and he has been on the faculty of the neurosurgery department at Stanford University since 1997, as well as the director and founder of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, known as CARE. And I spoke with him about his rare and remarkable story to arriving at such titles, which he explores in a book called into, into the magic, the magic shop. shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. I am so happy to have you here today. Welcome to Daring to Tell. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you, Michelle, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. The thing that first drew me to your book, well, certainly the title, that always gets us, but the quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. That was what hooked me because I'm always curious about the spaces between things. And this seemed like the space that you were going to really get into and in which you did. Your book is about your very unlikely path to becoming a neurosurgeon in spite of a really challenging childhood start in life. So if we just start there, I, I wonder if you want to start by talking about your inspiration to write this story. Sure. Uh, first of all, I, I actually had no interest in writing a book. Uh, in fact, I had been approached by a number of literary agents who had somehow attended some events I spoke at who had approached me. And first of all, I never considered myself an author. And second of all, I had plenty of commitments already. Interestingly, what happened was that I was at Desmond Tutu's 80th birthday party in Cape Town. Uh, it was a comparatively small event. Uh, there were only about 200 people there, which probably for most people, 200 people at birthday parties large, probably for Tutu, not so large. Right. But anyway, that event had three parts, uh, and which were quite extraordinary. The first part was a service in his church. He was now the emeritus pastor at St. George's. And actually, Bono participated in that, which again, in and of itself was quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. The second day, there was a book launch party related to a book that his daughter, Impa, had done with a journalist, which is a coffee table type of book of photographs and his story. So I attended that. And at that event, an individual came up to me, introduced himself. And I'm sure you've had the experience of being at events where you don't really know that many people and a ton of people introduce themselves. And typically you quickly forget them. But the interesting thing about this individual was that he was about six foot seven, handsome guy, very friendly. And so he stood out in my mind. And then the third day was a more typical birthday celebration at a winery. So I returned to the U.S. and probably a month or two later, I had an event at Stanford where I spoke. And I looked out in the audience and lo and behold, that individual was in the audience, mm -hmm. which I found quite strange. And at the end of the event, I was going to speak to him, but I was inundated with people who wanted to speak to me. And when I looked up again, he was gone. This actually happened a second time, and I missed him that time as well. Mm -hmm. I did end up meeting him when I hosted a book launch party for a friend of mine at my home. 
and I did not make up the guest list. And at that party, this individual came up to me and he introduced himself again and reminded me that we had met in Cape Town. And he informed me that he was a literary agent, that he had been following my work for a few years, and that he found the talks that I had given and the stories that I told very compelling. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do a book with me. And one of the major reasons he wanted to do it was also because his father, I believe, was in his 80s. And he had shared some of my stories with his father. And he wanted to give his father the gift of my book. That's very interesting. Yeah. Which in and of itself, you know, was quite moving. And interestingly enough, I immediately agreed. I didn't know who this fellow was in terms of his mm -hmm. reputation or really anything about him. What did you think of that reason? No, I, I thought it, it actually moved me. Now, yeah. <laughs> what I tell people is later I found out his dad had been dead for 10 years. But uh, that's, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, what? You had me yeah, on. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so I was quite moved by that. And then what happened was after I agreed to this, I looked the fellow up and it turned out that he was actually Tutu's literary agent had been Mandela's wow. literary agent and had also uh, worked with Richard Branson in the past. So obviously this was uh, an incredibly talented and uh, well-known individual. Yeah. And so from there, we spent about three months doing an outline for the book. And then for the next year and a half or two years, I would work from five to seven in the morning, uh, actually dictating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then that would get transcribed. Then it would be looked at by one of himself or one of his editors. Yeah. And then every few weeks I would meet with one of his editors and she would give recommendations or thoughts or add her two cents, if you will. And that iterative process went on until the book was completed. About how long was that full process? Uh, probably two years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that is, that's very interesting for a number of reasons. Um, what what did you think of the writing process once you kind of were dragged into it? I, I think it's interesting that you did it by dictating and then transcribing because um, I'll tell you that the way that I first read your book, my husband and I have had a practice of looking up books that we are interested in for various reasons. Usually they have to do with scientific explorations of things that we may or may not actually be able to scientifically show. And we, I read, usually I read out loud. I love reading out loud. It's kind of why I started this podcast. And we have read where a journalist went in to explore and try to document near-death experiences and what can be known from what people say they experience versus other evidence that can be come up with. So in that line, we discovered, I discovered your book and I said, let's put this one on our list. So we began reading out loud. And in reading it out loud, it was very readable. I mean, I <laughs> of of many books that we read out loud, some are easier to 
tell to read and others. So we were concurrently reading yours with Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe. (laughs) And that had its moments of flow and readability. But let me tell you, sometimes that was... (laughs) a little intense. Anyways, my point is it was a very conversational story with auditory flow, if that's even a term at all. So that was part of what I very much enjoyed about not just reading it, but reading it out loud. Um, The other thing I'll say is very interesting that it started with Desmond Tutu, because if I can indulge myself Oh, this is another book I am slowly making my way through. For those who can't see me holding up the book, it is called The Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu and Empo Tutu, his daughter. Empa, Empa, I would just Empa, say. thank you. Yes, I was uh, I hadn't heard it. Yes, actually, she's a friend of mine and I did a podcast with her myself actually. Oh, oh, I'll definitely have to check that one out. So continuing on. <laughs> You were urged to write this at the urging of Desmond Tutu's literary agent, which, you know, doesn't happen to most <laughs> <laughs> most writers. Um, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the magic shop, about meeting Ruth, about recall. I guess one of my big questions about in the writing of the book was you recalled a lot of very specific dialogue. So how did that all happen? Well, first of all, I was 12 and uh, I did not have a journal in which I wrote down every word that was spoken. A dialogue was created uh, based on my recollections. Clearly, it was not a word by word recapturing of everything that was said. You know, on some level, there's a degree of literary license, if you will. Of course. But fundamentally, it is truth. It's just impossible to remember every word. You just sort of have a gestalt of what you felt, what was said, etc. To answer more specifically your question, what happened was I was having a very challenging time. I was 12, soon to be 13, and I had a sense of despair and hopelessness because I had grown up in poverty. My father was an alcoholic. My mother had had a stroke when I was a child, uh, was partially paralyzed, had a seizure disorder, and actually was chronically depressed, had uh, attempted suicide multiple times. We were on public assistance. We had been evicted from multiple residences. And of course, this is not a background that is typically associated with success. Mm -hmm. And in fact, while many people acknowledge or promote my story, the fact of the matter is that very, very few people are able to succeed from those types of environments. In fact, I would suggest it's probably a one in a million story. Mm -hmm. And of course, this has to do with the nature of what we call ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, where there is violence, drug and alcohol abuse, poverty, lack of resources, violence, et cetera, et cetera. These add up to a score, and the higher the score, the less likely you are to succeed by traditional Western standards of success. But what's more sad is, of course, many individuals who grew up in those environments succumb to drug and alcohol abuse or mental illness and also have a variety of health issues. What changed for me uh, or what gave me a sense of the possibilities was that 
when I would have challenges at home, oftentimes I would get on my bicycle and ride as fast and as far away from my house somewhere. And on one of those occasions, I ended up at a strip mall. And in that strip mall was a magic shop. And I'd had a long time interest in magic. So I went in and I began asking questions. And the woman who was there uh, was in her, I would say, early 50s. She had this long flowing gray hair. She had glasses that were on the tip of her nose with the chain around her neck. And she was reading this very thick paperback. But she looked up and she greeted me with this incredibly warm, embracing smile, which made me feel immediately comfortable. And uh, we began a conversation. As the initial part of that, she informed me she knew nothing about magic. It was her son's store. She was just minding the store while he ran some errands. That being said, after about 15 or 20 minutes of conversation, she told me she was there for the next six weeks and that if I was interested, she would be happy to meet with me for an hour and a half or two every day And because she thought she could teach me some things that might be helpful. Prior to that, she was querying me about who I was or my family relationship. And in this instance, I was quite honest with her, while normally I would avoid that type of a discussion for probably obvious reasons. So I did show up every day for six weeks, and we would meet in the back of this magic shop. And she fundamentally, through what she taught me, changed the trajectory of my life. Mm -hmm. You must have had some kind of feeling for her when you, like I I know through the book you said you were a little like mm, who is this lady what's going on but there was clearly a deeper somehow connection or sense that she had an ideation about you that was hopeful I am I'm not sure how to qualify that well there's a little bit of a backstory here which I mentioned in the book the reason she was there was to meet with her grandson and the parents uh, the magic shop owner was divorced and they had a child who was about my age, and she came to spend time with him during the summer. And what happened was there was apparently some sort of an argument uh, which resulted in the mother refusing to send him. And so Ruth, this woman, uh, was not going to meet her grandson. And I think in part, I may have reminded her of him. Mm -hmm. And also uh, she saw within me things that she believed she could help me with, and probably from her own experience. Clearly, she'd had some background in Eastern religion or traditions. And remember, this was before the concept of meditation or mindfulness was well known, and before this concept of neuroplasticity. Right. So I think uh, that is what led to her connecting with me. Plus, I mean, frankly, for most children at my age with my background, to meet somebody who immediately makes you feel comfortable or psychologically safe is fairly unusual mm -hmm. because the nature mm -hmm. of most people is you're immediately judged. You're judged by how you're dressed. You're judged how you carry yourself. You're judged by the language you use. And for Many people, uh, that type of judgment actually has negative connotations. Very few people give you the benefit of the doubt or necessarily make the positive assumptions that we wish they all would because the nature of our evolution as a species is to 
protect yourself and to shy away from the unknown. Uh, so I certainly was appreciative of the fact that she and I connected and she was so kind. Yes. Well, that's clear. And she did certainly prove to be a very impactful person as she trained or taught you these techniques, which today is, as you say, is much more well-known as meditation or mindfulness. And you mentioned neuroplasticity, which as a non-scientist, I think I understand to mean our own ability or maybe the brain's ability to relearn or rewire itself somehow. Is that even close to? No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, now, okay. that's not completely a general truth. If you have a large segment of your brain damaged from a stroke mm -hmm. and it impairs your ability to speak or to use your limbs, there are instances certainly where people can improve, but in most cases, they cannot get back to their baseline. Mm -hmm. So the idea of neuroplasticity is rewiring the brain, if you will, mm -hmm. but it's not universal. So, Right. But for the purposes of, of you with Ruth over those six weeks, I wonder if you had a sense that you felt differently somehow from the beginning to the end. Well, of course. Uh, first of all, I mean, I was somewhat suspicious because what she was teaching me was completely unknown to me, and I was 12, and I did not have the insight or self-awareness or wisdom or knowledge to completely understand that from the start. And in fact, frankly, I thought she was crazy. Mm -hmm. But I gave it the benefit of the doubt because I liked her and I felt what she was trying to teach me uh, would be helpful to me. And I practiced it. Mm -hmm. And I found that it allowed me to develop a sense of calmness and to be present. Mm -hmm. When you grow up in a background like mine, in some ways, it's like being in a constant trauma zone. Mm -hmm. There's no schedule, if you will. Uh, you never know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're hypervigilant. And as a result, when you're in that mode, which is stimulation of your sympathetic nervous system or down regulation of your vagus nerve, then you can't really be present. You're always on the lookout for something happening. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that state, it's hard to learn. It's hard to connect. So this technique of relaxation that she taught me really had a significant impact, as well as this other mindfulness practice, as an example, in my case, looking at a candle and being attuned to that in conjunction with the breathing exercise also had a powerful effect because the nature of those actions, especially the breathing, again, shifts you from engagement of your sympathetic nervous system to engagement of your parasympathetic nervous system or this rest and digest system. And when you're in that mode, you're much more thoughtful, you're inclusive, you're not scared. So what happens is that part of your brain, which is associated with what we call executive control functions, works much better. Mm -hmm. Because in survival mode, when your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, you do not have those connections. They shut down because you're in, in survival mode. So you're trying to figure out the shortest, quickest way to respond to something negative. While if you feel safe, you realize you have a lot more options as to what you do. You have 
access to memories, prior experiences mm. that then give you a whole menu of different things that you could possibly do in a particular situation. Right. So that's very, very profound. Well, in order to uh, keep us moving, I was wondering if maybe this would be a good time to read a little bit from the book. Sure. And I've asked you to read a chapter that's titled Unacceptable. I'm, we don't exactly get to the unacceptable part of it, but we'll maybe just, uh, and we'll talk about that if we want or need to. But if you want to begin with that whenever you are ready. So here we go. Unacceptable. Just under the cerebrum and in front of the cerebellum sits the brainstem. If you imagine the cerebrum as a world-famous rock star on a concert tour, the cerebellum would be the choreographer determining the moves the cerebrum makes, and the brainstem would be the road manager responsible for coordinating all the information needed to make sure the tour runs smoothly and the rock star has everything he or she needs to be a rock star. The brainstem is much smaller than the cerebrum, but it is in charge of all the functions that keep the body alive, and it is the highway that is responsible for millions of messages that need to pass back and forth between the brain and the body. The brain begins forming approximately three weeks after conception when the neural tube fuses shut and the first synapses of the central nervous system allow for fetal movement. The brainstem then develops and coordinates the necessary vital functions such as heart rate, breathing, and blood pressure, creating the potential for life outside the womb. The higher regions of the brain, the limbic system and cerebral cortex, are primitive at birth, allowing time for experience and the environment to shape them completely. This shaping and development of the higher regions of the brain through experience never ends. There is no retirement for the brain. Every experience matters. Noel came into the emergency room complaining of headaches, nausea, and vomiting. She and her husband and two children, a four-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy in tow. The couple were in their early 30s, and Noel was eight months pregnant. Headaches and nausea can be normal symptoms of pregnancy, but in the third trimester, their sudden onset, along with high blood pressure, can be an indicator of preeclampsia, a dangerous condition for both mother and baby. I happened to be on call that morning, making rounds in the hospital, when the family came in. The obstetrician had been called, but had yet to arrive at the hospital when Noel suddenly collapsed in the emergency room and became unresponsive. By the time I got to her, she had been intubated and was undergoing a CT scan of her brain. During the scan, her vital signs started going crazy and her blood pressure became incredibly unstable. Looking at the scan, I could see that what was once her brainstem had now been almost completely replaced with blood. Noel had sustained a massive brainstem hemorrhage, an intraparenchymal bleed, the kind people don't recover from. We began resuscitation efforts right there in the CT scan suite, but I held out little hope. I saw no sign of brainstem reflexes, those involuntary movements that occur when the brainstem is functioning properly. Her pupils were fixed and dilated. 
she was completely unresponsive. Noelle's body was still alive, but her brain was dead. I ordered medications to sustain her blood pressure and called the operating room to tell them to get ready. Paige and OB immediately, I yelled at the nurses, this baby needs to be delivered now or it will die. I ran alongside the gurney, heading to the operating room, praying that an obstetrician would show up. The OR team had rapidly set up for an emergency cesarean section. We wheeled her into the operating room. The pediatrician was there, but no obstetrician. Noelle's blood pressure began dropping rapidly and her heartbeat was becoming more erratic. And suddenly, everyone was looking at me. Time was running out. It had been 20 years since I had rotated on obstetrics as an intern, but there was no other surgeon in the operating room. Unless I did something, this baby was going to die. I was going to have to perform an emergency cesarean section and deliver the baby. There was no time for preliminaries or any more hesitation. Noelle was brain dead. I knew we wouldn't be able to sustain her blood pressure much longer. We placed her on the OR table. The anesthesiologist quickly anesthetized her, and I rapidly prepped and draped her for surgery. I looked around again, praying for the obstetrician to walk in. Her heart suddenly began skipping beats with bleeps from the EKG machine. The anesthesiologist looked at me and said, her pressure's dropping. We've maxed out on the drugs. You need to move. I could feel the sweat on my forehead and realized I was breathing fast. I was scared. And then I closed my eyes and began breathing slowly in and out, in and out. I was back at the magic shop. I took a scalpel and sliced open her abdomen and then her uterus. I placed my hands into her body and pulled out the baby. There was a small thin cut across the baby's forehead from the knife I had used to open up Noel, but apart from that, he was alive and healthy. I handed him to the pediatrician, cut and clamped the umbilical cord and sewed Noel back up. Her heart stopped beating just seconds after her baby was born. They don't give you any training in medical school on how to tell a husband and two young children, their wife and mother is gone. You can't be human and not feel the pain of the relatives, wave after wave of grief, anger, denial, and despair. And that is why many doctors will simply say, I did all I could. I'm sorry. Then they will immediately walk away, leaving a hospital chaplain or other staffer to pick up the broken pieces. There's nothing matter of fact in telling a husband that his wife has died. No sorry That can ease the pain of a child who can't begin to fathom that this one horrible day means his mother will never 
make him a peanut butter sandwich. Again. Or read him a story or kiss and cuddle him after he's fallen down. I took Noel's husband aside and I told him what happened. He closed his eyes, reached out to me, and wailed a horrible cry of pain and despair. There was nothing I could do but hold him as he cried. The two children, seeing their father cry, also began to wail. I did my best to make space for his family's grief. I tried to tell Noel's husband about the baby, but he couldn't hear anything beyond the hard truth that his wife was gone. As I sat there with them, I noticed that the front of my surgical scrubs were splatted with tiny drops of blood. Noel's blood, blood from the baby's forehead. Did it matter? It's hard to celebrate a birth when you are grieving a death. But isn't that what it all comes down to? comes down to in this life, we are born and we die, and everything that happens between the two can feel random. So random it defies logic. The only choice we have is in how we respond in each precious moment we are given. In that moment, there was nothing but pain, and my choice was whether to offer comfort and share the pain or walk away. I stayed with them, and for how long, I don't know. I just know I was there for them as best as I could be. Noel's brain had died, and all those functions each of us take for granted ceased. And here was her son, whose brain was now experiencing the reality of the world for the first time. Again, the randomness and arbitrariness of the world. Our experiences and our environment shape us all. And my hope was that this family would recover from this tragedy and this baby would not carry visible wounds from the story of his birth and the randomness of his mother's death. It wasn't my first death as a surgeon, nor would it be my last. It also wasn't the first time I had walked away from a family with blood on my clothing. That first time that happened, I was going off to college and the family was my own. Thank you so much for reading that. More more than that, thank you so much for um for writing that and for living that and it's um it, words don't seem like enough to say it is extraordinary um not only to be in the moment in that operating room when you realize I'm going to have to do this thing I haven't done. And then to have to say those words, I mean, obviously it's. Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, uh, you know, there are people who write books and stories like this and they can, you know, easily read them without uh, any emotional response. But uh, 
clearly I have not mastered that ability. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if you should master that, honestly. Really. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. I was giving a lecture one time. And, you know, I tell stories like this or stories about my life that are very moving and that obviously people can relate with. And oftentimes my voice will crack or I'll shed a tear or, and I'm obviously moved. And it's interesting because that gives permission for people to share their emotions or to display their emotions. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've talked to hundreds of people and suddenly when I react, everybody starts crying or you hear them uh, sharing their emotions. And yeah. I did that one time and there was a, a woman in the audience who came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, gosh, I watched you up there. You must have been so embarrassed. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, you know, God, you told the story. You had a, a tear. You were almost crying. Uh, clearly, you were very moved. You must have been really ashamed and embarrassed. And I looked at her and said, what? And she said, listen, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotist. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, if you come to me for three sessions, I can get rid of that for you. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, why would I want that? I, I mean, that is what makes me a human being. It's what makes me a person that people can relate to and respond to. And it allows people to touch their inner being and their deepest feelings, which frankly doesn't typically happen in Western society because everyone's afraid of being judged. And, you know, by me standing up there and showing my emotions, it allows others, uh, you know, to be liberated from that constraint. And so I said, no, thank you. <laughs> that's, I'm so glad. <laughs> it, that's kind of funny you say that because it reminds me, um, well, I will break it to you. You're not the first person to cry on Daring to Tell. <laughs> I feel like uh, we have many tears on this podcast because I really want to hear from people about the things that are most important. And that often involves tears. Well, my story about the tears, though, is a woman who I had on a little over a year ago. Her name is Caroline Fitzgerald, and she read a story that's a manuscript that she's working on. And she is also, interestingly, a hypnotist, among other things. And in reading her story, she was crying and I, a little bit in the moment that it brought her to tears and we were talking about it. And I talked about how to get to that moment where we cry, I mean, that is the moment where it tells us something. And I don't shy away from that. I feel like I want to know what, where that emotion is. And I want to understand it too. Because sometimes I don't. I have been at a point in my life where I cry and I have no idea why. Um, but she called it healing tears. And I do think that there's something in that when we allow ourselves to get to the point where we can have those tears because it allows for that catharsis. You might have thoughts on that. I have plenty of other too, but I want to hear what you have to say. No, I, I, I think that's uh, exactly right. There's actually a wonderful quote, if I can figure out where it is, mm -hmm. uh, about tears, which uh, 
Oh, that's not there. Anyway. Well, another of, of so many things that strike me within this one section also has to do with the things that one is not taught in medical school and being in a field where you've had to deal with, as you said, facing death with patients many times. I mean, you have your Compassion Institute now. You were very influential at Stanford and other very important places. Is this changing in any way? Do you see um, an ability to bring the power of listening or the power of presence? Um, Because I think what the techniques of meditation and mindfulness try to help us get to is the ability to sit with a lot of really difficult things. Uh, Sure. If you look over sort of the history of meditation mindfulness, uh, in the West at least, it started out as the modification of a Buddhist practice to help people deal with uh, their pain and suffering. Initially, uh, this work, which was primarily done by John Kabat-Zinn, did not have an explicit compassion component or a self-compassion component. And in fact, we created a program at the center I founded that included those components, which to me is sort of the complete aspect of this Buddhist practice. And if you notice over the last decade or so, Especially now, compassion is uh, very prominent and is understood to be critically important in how we live our lives, compassion for self and compassion for others. And I think it is becoming more and more powerful and accepted in some ways, even as a health practice. Mm -hmm. It also, I think, confronts the promotion of a divisive narrative that has been promoted by certain individuals because they have responded to a fear narrative set out by a subset of people, which results in stimulation of your sympathetic nervous system, separation from others, Mm. and a perception that you're being attacked, which is very, very sad. But I do believe that uh, this compassion narrative is extraordinarily powerful and will become more so, and I truly believe that is what will ultimately save our species. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Um, Another big part of your book was finding the capacity to forgive with your family and your upbringing, which was very difficult, as you told us. And the next section goes on to discuss the very difficult, horrible experience of when you left home for college and your dad showed up drunk. He hadn't been home in a really long time, and he only showed up hours before you were about to get on a bus, and it resulted in a horrible fistfight, and it was not good. And you got on that bus, and you went to college again against many odds. Um, But our parents are our parents, and we have this knowledge that they are doing the best they can for us. How, how did you come to forgiveness for that? Well, I think part of it was the revelation that anger, fear, hostility towards others uh, 
doesn't benefit you. Uh, and in fact, it uh, has a very negative effect and it, it actually prevents you from your own growth. And I think it's also a understanding or recognition that oftentimes people's behavior or actions towards you aren't really about you. Mm -hmm. They're based on one's prior experiences that have allowed them to survive. And that's what often people fall back on when they're afraid. And also, as an example, with my parents who had their own challenges, they did not have the tools within themselves to be present for me. They were struggling with their own demons. Well, if you can't deal with your own issues and you haven't been taught techniques, you can't necessarily be held responsible for them. So when I had my experience with Ruth and I gave myself self-compassion, if you will, mm. and it was very healing for me because especially as children, you have a tendency to blame yourself for all the stuff that goes on within your family. Mm -hmm. As an example, well, it was because I was present that my parents got divorced. I created the tension. Mm -hmm. Or the reason my father didn't like me was because I had done something or whatever it is. Right. It's not fair and it's not true. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people have their own struggles, which we don't recognize. And give them that benefit of the doubt. And so when I was able to develop my own self-compassion, forgive myself, I understood that my parents were suffering and didn't have the tools to help themselves. So it allowed me to forgive them. And it has also been helpful throughout you know, my life. I mean, all of us have experiences or situations which we think have been unfair to us and have hurt us and have caused a significant amount of pain. And the easiest thing is to strike out at the other. And the problem with that, of course, is you create all this negative emotion, but it's not doing anything to the other person whatsoever. All it does is stimulate all of these emotions, which have a very deleterious effect on us, both physiologically and mentally. And so by offering forgiveness, which is not the same as forgetting, mm -hmm. you just no longer have that type of negative emotional response. And I found that very, very helpful. I mean, I have been wrong many times, as every human has been, and it is what it is. In some ways, this is an exercise in equanimity. All of us would like to constantly experience positive affirmations have good things happen to us. We would all love to sort of live there, mm -hmm. but that is not possible. And these experiences, like all experiences, are typically transitory. And the interesting thing about negative experiences, oftentimes, and sadly so, people look at a negative experience as a permanent experience and unfortunately often respond in a very negative way towards themselves versus understanding like the positive experience one has, they're transitory. Mm -hmm. And sort of not being attached to the extremes and having a sense that you want an evenness of temperament about how you behave. Mm -hmm. It's not that you don't enjoy the good things, you're just not lost in them or attached to them. And the same is true of the bad things because 
the benefit of bad things happening is that is where you learn your greatest lessons. It's where you learn resilience. It's where mm-hmm. you learn wisdom. And in fact, sometimes those are the greatest gifts. So having an evenness of temperament, I think, is very important. And not getting lost or attached to having everything work out for you, because then that's what you crave. That creates jealousy. It creates envy. It creates unhappiness and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so while in my own experience, I've had uh, pretty much what most people would consider a very successful life from Western standards, and whether that's a nice home, cars, experiences, I thoroughly enjoy them. But if they all go away tomorrow, I'm perfectly happy. And in your book, you detail how that happened (laughs) (laughs) prior time. So there's a lot of uh, transitory experience of good and bad that goes on. Oh, I, I did find that quote, if you would like me to Oh, read yeah, it. sure. It's by Washington Irving, mm-hmm. and the quote is as follows. There is a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but a power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contrition, and of unspeakable love. That's very beautiful. I I love that. I'm glad you found it. <laughs> you know, so much of your story and your experience of the down places, the very down places you ended up, you know, you started with your childhood that was very difficult. You used, I'll say used, Ruth's techniques to get you to some pretty high places. And then that got taken away too. And it all had to do with this very elusive thing called the compass of the heart or opening the heart. How, how is it practical? Sure. Oftentimes people ask me, what is my practice? And of course there's a subset of people who will say, well, I sit down on the mat or I do this yoga exercise for X amount of time. I think that as you gain more experience with these types of practices, one is every moment can be a moment of meditation. Mm -hmm. How you carry yourself, how you respond, how you react. What I do in my own personal practice also is that every morning when I wake up and sit by the bed, I will close my eyes and I will think of all of the joy and awe in this world and do a breathing exercise for a few minutes. And then I will go through the alphabet of the heart, which, as you know, is uh, at the end of my book, and literally starting with the letter C and going through L. Each one of those, as an example, you know, I'll sit there and say compassion for self and others, recognizing the dignity of every person, practicing equanimity, practicing forgiveness, having gratitude, having humility, having integrity and values that bound your behavior, having justice and an understanding that you have a responsibility for those who are vulnerable. Uh, K, of course, is practicing kindness. It has nothing to do with suffering per se, just being nice. 
all contained by love. That sets the tone of my day, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the day, if I'm particularly stressed or anxious, I will just close my eyes and breathe a bit and go through that mantra of the alphabet. And it calms me. And that's it. And you've taught it to many people. So hopefully that love is spreading out. Well, I have to say, you know, if you look at the work that Sea Care has done, the center that I run, you know, I'm very blessed. We have programs and courses that literally have trained tens of thousands of people who've then trained other people. The book, surprisingly, was not only a New York Times bestseller, but has been a bestseller in now over 40 languages and various editions. It was used by the Korean pop music band, uh, BTS, as the basis <laughs> wow. uh, for their third album called Love Yourself Tear. Wow. And in fact, the fourth song in that album is called Magic Shop. So <laughs> That's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, I have been extraordinarily blessed. The work that I've done has had an impact all over the world, which I'm very appreciative of. And, you know, I look back at my own situation. I was involved in developing some medical technologies, impacted hundreds of thousands of people. So, I mean, my goodness, I can't complain about anything. Uh, My life has been one of continued blessings and understanding that basically all of us are one. And if you look at the world through that lens, Mm -hmm. you always make the right decision. Yes. And you're able to do this because after you were in an accident, you didn't have to necessarily end up back on this earth. And that's another really big question I have to say. I'm very curious about the near-death experience that you write about. And you also write about not believing in a powerful supreme being, but also having this experience that was representative of many similar ones that if anyone's read about these things, you were in a flowing river headed to the light. I I am so curious about how much that impacts your day-to-day or how you are living your life today and, and what you think about what might be next for all of us, not on this planet anymore. Well, It's interesting because a lot of people would like to attribute who I am to that experience. And um, it had no impact. Um, Mm. And I don't mean to denigrate anyone else's experience or how they felt about it, but Mm -hmm. I looked at it from a science perspective. And uh, if those individuals interested, you can look at it from a brain physiology point of view and see how as you decrease blood flow to your occipital cortex, suddenly you see light everywhere. The other thing is that as you continue to lose oxygen, those memories that are deepestly embedded with you, which typically have to do with people close to you, come forth. You know, it's fascinating because you can imagine if there was quote unquote one truth and you had this experience, then one person wouldn't see Jesus and another person since Mohammed or whomever. And so it tells you or tells me that it's just an event. It has no (laughs) uh, particular meaning. It's not a pleasant Mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. So that had no impact on how I see the world. My perspective is it doesn't really matter what's there. You know, Mm -hmm. if you look at the world in general, 
as mm-hmm. I even said in that uh, a portion of my book that I read, you know, the world is filled with randomness and arbitrariness. And as a species, we have a desire to explain things. So we create narratives to explain things. And in fact, Mm -hmm. uh, you could argue that's why there is religion. Because as we evolved as a species, and we ultimately became hunter-gatherers, you know, if the group got beyond 150, and I think it's called Dumbarton's number, you can't really track what those individuals are doing. Plus, you know, we're one of the only species that has a finite sense of our existence, which creates immense amount of anxiety. Well, so what do you do? You create an omniscient being that can see everything that you do. And for some Mm -hmm. people, then that motivates them to do the right thing, even if they're not observed. And then to decrease the stress and anxiety or existential crises of our finiteness, then we create everlasting life. So if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're good and you do the right thing, then you'll live forever. And Mm -hmm. the very nature of that decreases uh, stress and anxiety. And so those are the logical explanations versus what I feel is the probable reality Mm -hmm. uh, that there is nothing beyond this existence. And, you know, there's a recently written article that consciousness extending beyond our mind Mm -hmm. is against the law of physics. But I don't need any of that. If I'm here for a finite period of time, what makes me happy is to be of service and to care for others. Yeah. Because that's how we evolved as a species. That's how our physiology works its best. I don't need anything else beyond that. That makes me feel good. And if it ends, it ends. And uh, that's okay. I'm perfectly fine with that and accept that. I I have no fear of death. Uh, Would I prefer it to to live longer than uh, not? Of course. But that being said, I've done the best I can. And I'm not perfect. And I accept that. And uh, I've just been happy and thankful to be on the trajectory that I've been on. I am too. And I'm grateful to have the chance to talk with you. Before you go, my final question, what was most daring about this book for you? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people say, wow, you really laid yourself out in that book. You're very vulnerable. You talked about your foibles. But as you see from my own emotional response, that's not really an issue with That's me. not, yeah, that was not a problem. Uh, uh, so I, I really can't say there have been. It's just now what I would say is that the help I got with the book is really what made the book. Uh, there's a woman who worked with me closely by the name of Laura Love at the publishing house or the literary agency who really was instrumental. I mean, she guided me, she helped me, she mm-hmm. made improvements. So uh, frankly, the book would not have been what it was without her. Mm -hmm. So I do want to acknowledge that. But uh, no, it wasn't. There were no issues. Uh, You know, I have a tendency if I think of something or want to do something, I just sort of go off and do it. And no blowback from the medical community about, uh, you know, operating room, you know, sort of moments where you really had to stop and pull yourself together or anything like that. Uh, No, because the reality is that every surgeon uh, and every physician has been in these situations where they don't know what to do, where they're doing the best they can, and whatever technique got them through it, that's uh, wonderful. But no, in fact, I never heard a negative comment uh, ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Now, I have heard some interesting comments. Uh, You know, it's interesting what people write, you know, like an Amazon review. Here you have, I think, three or 4,000 comments with 
you know, it's a right. 4.7 oh, yeah. or 4.8 or whatever yes. it is. And then somebody will go one over five right, <laughs> and right. be like, well, I don't believe a word he said. <laughs> like, okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, what can you do? There's all types out there. Sure. Well, Dr. Doty, it has been a pleasure to spend the past hour plus talking <laughs> with you. So thank you so much for being on Daring to Tell. Well, wonderful. Well, I hope your listeners enjoy. And one thing I would like to say is that never forget that every one of us in a, uh, has the capacity to make at least one person's life better every day. And if you use that as a mantra you live by, it will not only improve the world, but it will make you a happy person. Yeah, that is a great message to try and keep in mind each day. This was a very interesting conversation for me. I can't deny that I felt a little bit let down when he talked about how this book came into existence. Everyone has a different style, I know, but what I realized about an hour after talking with him was he's a brain surgeon, not a writer, a brain surgeon against the odds with a powerful message. This book is the vehicle for his message. But this whole conversation has had me thinking more about books, the power and experience of books. They are a medium for a message composed by a solitary person, then consumed by a solitary person, ideally many of them, but it's a one-to-one deal. You, writer, to me, reader. I feel that rapport with each book I read. I sit with the author and I listen. And because I'm human, I frequently can't help but want to respond, to push back and follow up and share my thoughts on their story. His answers were much more those of a scientist than any of the other memoir writers I've spoken with. Nothing was daring to him even, which was um, informative and very interesting. But what I think is profound about this man and this book is the call to have an open heart. That's something quite abstract and something I think very difficult to try and describe, but at the same time, not entirely unfamiliar either. What do you think? Because a podcast is also kind of like a book in that it's a one-to-one deal. Me, podcaster, to you, listener. And I am always curious to hear your thoughts. I have put links in the show notes for Dr. Doty's book and his Center for Compassion and for my own website where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter called Hit Pause, where I muse over other things about writing and life after each monthly podcast. Thank you to my husband, Phil Rado, for sharing his music, Nothing Like That, for this month's theme. And thank you for making it all the way to the end of another episode. And most of all, for daring to listen. I imagine all the trees can see The sun will move and the moon will slide Into the place where we'll spend eternity